You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast. Seeing how many people all over the world have been tuning in and wonderful messages I've been getting from people just like you who are really feeling inspired by this podcast has left me, well, truly inspired. So I just want to take a moment and say thank you. This podcast is a talk I gave after a primary series class that I led on Zoom recently. After the class, we had what's sometimes called conference, where there's a discussion about the philosophical elements of the practice, followed by a student Q&A. I hope you find both the discussion and the Q&A relevant for your practice and that you can pick up some tidbits of inspiration and yoga knowledge to inform your practice and your everyday life. If you want to practice with me online, there are lots of opportunities these days. So you can tune in on omstars.com and you can find me on YouTube regularly. And you can also join a live class with me on Zoom. All that info is on my website under kinoyoga.com. Also, if you haven't checked out my new book, Get Your Yoga On, it's available for pre-order coming out in September and so so excited to share this book with you. And that's already out on Amazon and other booksellers. Lastly, if you're enjoying this podcast and you haven't left a review, I would be so happy and grateful for you to leave a review. All right, I'll leave it there for now and let you enjoy this episode. I hope you have a really beautiful day and that you stay inspired to practice. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining the practice today. This was really, really, really nice. I, uh, missed practicing with my teacher this weekend and uh, hopefully you got to enjoy the practice today. So we have a little bit of time for a discussion and I wanted to start off and chat with you a little about the deeper intention of the practice. And then if you have any questions, you're welcome to type them into the chat. For some of you who are newer to the practice, um, I know it can be a lot to go through the Ashtanga Yoga Primary Series. This is really a practice that you could continue for your entire life and never really reach kind of a feeling like it's easy. I've been practicing for more than 20 years and I don't think it's easy. I think it's actually very hard. There's a fly that's become attracted to me that's now landed on my nose and I'm trying to remain you know, non-aggressive towards the fly, you know. Tim said yesterday there was a fly that was in love with him. So I guess it's transferred its love over to me. When we think about uh, the purpose of the practice, we of course practice first for selfish interests and we must, you know, nobody comes to practice because they think, you know, let me come to practice so that I can be of benefit to the world. We come to practice for selfish reasons and that's totally fine. You know, we come to practice because, you know, our bodies are in pain or our minds are in pain or something like that. And we uh, don't know how to get out of it. And usually people that come to yoga have tried conventional means to escape their suffering. So what are the conventional means to escape suffering? Well, you know, any of the addictions are conventional means to temporarily escape suffering. And these could be quite devastating and harmful addictive states. And there could be, you know, less harmful addicted states. You know, you could have an addiction to 
Instagram, for example. I don't know if any of you are addicted to Instagram, but what an addiction looks like is anytime you're bored, you reach for it. So I'm definitely guilty of that sometimes in our social media addiction. We're like, oh, let's just go look on Instagram now. Why? Because I have 30 seconds of calmness in my life and I'd like to insert images of other people into that. So they say with particularly Instagram and Facebook that you do get a hit of dopamine in your brain that actually mirrors or mimics uh, sort of like, you know, a hit of dopamine. It's a little, it's a little hit of almost a drug hit inside of the brain. And so when we train ourselves to go back to that, that's a little bit of an escape from where we are, whatever suffering we're experiencing. It's a temporary kind of escape route from that. There are other things, uh, shopping, uh, maybe another addiction, or at least putting a lot of things in your online shopping cart may be a nice, uh, addiction. Um, and then of course there are the really harmful ones, drug abuse and drug addiction and, and other, and you know, and other, and other things that can really devastate your entire life. Actually shopping can also devastate your life or at least your credit score. So the reason why I say that is most people that come to yoga have exhausted the conventional means to find happiness, which means that they've either chased the perfect job, gotten the perfect job, and then found out that it wasn't perfect. They've chased the perfect image of happiness in whatever form it was conventionally and you know presented to you, whether that looked like get the perfect job and the perfect house and the perfect family and the perfect amount in your bank account and put that there and sequester it over there, or whether it was you have to look and act and be in a particular way or whatever it was. Uh, and, then, and then some people have found uh, disillusionment in the norm, these normal channels that promise conventional happiness. So this could even be being disillusioned with um, you know, a formalized religion. And again, we come to the practice of yoga and we're like extremely interested in something real and substantial and something that speaks to the experiential truth of what it means to really, really, really wake up, really, really become truly happy. And to define happiness as something other than, you know, achievement, to define happiness as something other than um, just reaching for more and more of the same goals that everybody uh, sort of presents outward into the world. So we come to the practice as what you could say is a turning away from, a moving against the stream of the entire flow of conventionalism or sort of you know, the, the idea, the ideas which we could call being of the world. So we come to find a different path. And this path is what we call the spiritual path. And we come to the spiritual path, we're asked to give up things which we have identified with up until this moment. This is often understood to be peeling away the layers of our ego. We're asked to become something other than what we have known in our lives up until that moment when we step on the spiritual path. These are the elements of surrender, the elements more specifically, however, of tapas. If you haven't heard the term tapas, this is one of the words that comes up in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras and comes up in all of the traditional teachings of yoga, that tapas is the purification. We are here to purify. We are here not only to purify the body, but more specifically to purify the minds. All of our addictive tendencies to seek fast, easy shortcuts away from our suffering creates kind of a web inside of the mind that leads us, unfortunately, into more and more suffering. We, call it, we traditionally understand these as entrapments of the ego, 
when the ego says, you know, I want it to be like this. I want it to be like that. I, you know, think I'm going to get happy if you give me exactly this. I don't know. I would imagine that each of us has had the experience of the ego being really, really specific and outlining. I'll be happy if I get X, whatever that X might be, whether it was a car or, you know, a perfect job or something like that. And then you did receive that. Maybe you got really lucky and you got it. And then you realize this is not making me happy. Actually, you know, it's the, it's sometimes a great curse to get exactly what you wish for because then you've created it. And what are the, what is the, the ground from which that desire came from? According to our traditional yoga philosophy, that ground is the ego. And when the ego sprouts its desires, the desires are rooted necessarily in uh, the, in a self that is untrue. And the self that is untrue is, you know, the temp, our personalities, our bodies, our thoughts, our minds, all of these different uh, temporary qualities of, of being that we often identify with. Anytime a desire comes from that frame of mind, it's essentially rooted in the cycle of suffering. The spiritual path will ask you through the, through the vehicle of tapas to identify and burn away and remove and purify and break every chain of the ego. It sounds nice. You know, I want to be free. Let's, let's be free. People are protesting all over the United States. Let me be free. You know, I actually saw somebody with the sign that's a give me liberty or give me death. Again, be careful what you ask for. You know, I really thought that and said, I wouldn't be writing that right now. Um, you know, so we're, if we think about now, what are we doing on the spiritual path? We're trying to break those chains of the ego. And again, it sounds, yes, like give me, I want to be free. I want to be free. I want to be liberated. Right. Wonderful in theory, except when you realize, oh, what I'm trying to be liberated from is everything I know myself to be, my personality, my attachments, all of my personal likes and dislikes, everything I've known about my known universe, my personality, my habit pattern of being me. That's what I'm trying to be free of. And that is no easy task. This is why tapas is understood to be so difficult, so challenging, and so confrontational. And when you meet this confrontation in your yoga practice, you don't have the tools to understand what the methodology of yoga is actually seeking to achieve, then it begins to feel like yoga is just overwhelming. It's just all these hard poses that don't make any sense. But I, I want to bring your attention to what the benefits of tapas are, according to Patanjali. And this is, uh, Patanjali defines uh, all of the components of what is the eight-limbed path of Ashtanga yoga. Ashtanga comes from the Sanskrit word ashtao plus anga, eight limbs yoga, Ashtanga yoga. So this is where we get the name Ashtanga. Any yoga that can be considered to be practicing and interested in these eight limbs of practice, this can be called Ashtanga yoga. The physical practice that we did today, of course, is rooted in the tradition that we can trace back through Sharat Joyce and Patabi Joyce in Mysore through Krishnamacharya. But understand that the word Ashtanga comes from Patanjali. Patanjali's Yoga Sutra is written over 2,000 years ago and is meant to define a comprehensive spiritual path. So it is also possible that someone does an entirely different postural series and they still call it Ashtanga Yoga as long as those eight limbs are truly there and truly present. Hmm? Okay. So Patanjali says about tapas, he says, uh, kaya, indriya, sidir, ashtudiksaya, tapasyaha. So that's that, and we'll leave it there. I'm, I'm just kidding. Huh? So we're not speaking Sanskrit, so we have to unpack that a little bit. So it, kaya means body. So this is the first place where tapas will hit, kaya, the field of the body. And kaya is very interesting because it means both your physical body, but it also includes the body of energy. 
and the space around the body. And this is very interesting because when we're thinking about how our sensitivity and our sensibility is heightened through the practice, it's not only reducible to the materiality of the body. It's not only that you can sense and feel the body through the nerve endings and the muscles, but that there's something else. There's, there's the feeling of energy. So Kaya is both the physical body and the body of energy. What do we know about the body of energy? Well, our thoughts circulate in our body of energy, both our conscious and subconscious thoughts. They're there. So when we're thinking about tapas being applied to the field of body, we're thinking about tapas being applied to the physical body, yes. Definitely, physical body needs purification. But one thing to understand is that once something manifests in your physical body, whether pain, stiffness, flexibility, you know, ease, flow, whatever it is that you're feeling in the body, once it's there and you can feel it in the material substance of the body, and it is literally manifest, when that's there, you have been thinking whatever thoughts are related to that state of being for a very long time. So when we talk about tapas as applied to kaya, we mean not only the physical purification of the things which are present, you know, when your body feels stiff and you stretch it, this is tapas applied to kaya, right, to the body. When your body feels weak and you try to lift up in navasana and your shoulders are burning, this is tapas as applied to the body. When you do navasana and your legs are shaking, this is tapas applied to the physical body. But there's something else in the physical body. There's a vibration. There are thoughts which you're thinking in the subconscious mind, which are also the realm of kaya, the subconscious mind. So there's lots of scientific studies that are out there that talk about how the body is this repository of our subconscious thoughts. And that it's not necessarily this one-to-one ratio. It's not like, you know, I can press my knee and then out comes self-hatred. It doesn't like work like that, you know? It's not this, you, know, you, can't, you can't get like an anatomy book of the, the subtle body because your thoughts are going around in your body manifesting in different parts. You can't, you know, you can't press here and say, oh, how, because I have a pain in my abdomen then I'm mad at my mom. It's not like that. There's not this kind of, what you could think about as like new age guilt that you need to carry around for, any pains that have arisen in the body. It's not this one-to-one ratio. But when ta- but what I'm, we're bringing this up because when tapas works on the field of body, we have the ability to use the body as a door so that we can first experience the thoughts which are held deeply in the subconscious mind. And only through bringing up those deeply held subconscious thoughts do we have any hope of purifying them, of working with them, right? So kaya, indriya is the next word in the sutra. Indriya is, we know this is the senses. And what are the senses normally doing? Sensing the external world, right? Kaya, indriya. Normally our body is this vehicle for us to interact with the external world. All of our senses focusing externally. With our eyes, we're looking over here. We look outside, oh, blue sky, wonderful. I want to go here today because the sky is blue. We look outside, we see a beautiful flower. And depending on you know, what our past behavioral patterns, what we could call some scars are, either we appreciate the flower or we immediately try to pick it you know, and take it with us. This depends on our patterning, you know, what we do, all different reactions. Maybe you smell it and leave it there or just appreciate it, or maybe you don't even notice it. You know, it's just our past patterns. We see something, we react to it. We smell something, we react to it. Smell is very strong. Would you agree? Smell is extremely strong. All you have to think about is, you know, the last time you visited a bathroom that was used in a quite intense manner. And, you know, were you like, yeah, I want to go in here. It was like, you walk in and you're like, oh, right.
right. I'm going to practice non-attachment right now and turn the vent on and a candle and burn a bunch of matches and this kind of thing, you know, and wash the hands for a long time when I come out of the bathroom. So if we think about smell, taste the same way. You eat something good and you want to taste it again. Eat something disgusting forevermore. You're going to have a memory that's etched into the subconscious mind. Our sense is focusing externally, sound externally. If we think that the power of the senses is very intense, yoga doesn't say the senses are bad. Yoga says the senses, if left untrained without tapas, will take you like a wild horse into the cycle of suffering. Your senses will lead you down the road of addiction. The, length, the senses will lead you down the road of false promises of happiness. The senses will tell you, just eat me and I will make you happy forever whatever that is, whether it's a beautiful mango or it's an entire cheesecake. It will just sit there, your senses. If you eat me, you will experience permanent happiness. That's what the senses tell you. With your eyes, you look at something, whatever it is, you know, whether it's the cheesecake or whether it's you know, the, 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 the most cool looking pair of shoes you've ever seen. And the senses tell you, if you just have me, you'll be happy forever. And that's external focus. And again and again with sound, smell, taste, touch, it's all there. Touch is another one that's, that's so embedded in the subconscious, the kinesthetic sense of touch. We feel, you know, our bodies are in both positive and negative senses, right? The kinesthetic field of touch. It's not only positive things that we have craving for in the external world, in the field of senses, in the indriyas. It is also uh, aversion. So it is also rejection of things in the external world. Like, you know, the scent in the bathroom that was disgusting, that's a negative state. So we have craving and clinging generated towards the experience of the external world. This is how we normally use the senses, the untrained mind. When tapas is applied to the field of indriyas, that same power and inertia of the senses gets directed into the inner world so that you can experience something else. You can redirect the attention of the senses away from the external world into the inner path, the, the path of spiritual awakening. So you can harness the power of the wild horses of the senses and bring it internal. So yoga doesn't say senses are bad. Yoga says senses untrained lead you down a, a hapless path of suffering. But the senses trained will lead you into the heightened state of awareness that can lead to your liberation, that can lead to your freedom. So this is how the senses become purified. No longer are you victim to the senses, but you can actually say, oh, you're aware of where the senses are going. You can direct them to the inner world. Redirection of the senses is the way that we move into the subtle limb, often called, you know, we've often heard before, called pratyahara. And sometimes the translation of pratyahara, sense withdrawal, it, it, what are we withdrawing the senses from? We're withdrawing the senses from craving, clinging to the external world, but we're not turning them off. It's not like you take your hearing and turn it off. Otherwise, you know, everybody who is, is, doesn't have natural state of hearing, they would have this, you know, amazing, you know, experience of pratyahara. Pratyahara is not off with the senses, but it is a direction of the senses inner into the inner world. This creates the state of nirodaha, creates the state of stillness. That, that there is not the end of the yoga practice. There's another step even after that. This is creating the, the, the space for you to experience something deeper than this web of constantly identifying with thoughts, achievements, external forms of happiness, extrinsic values, these sorts of things. Kaya Indriya, Siddhir. Siddhi is a perfection. So Siddhi means perfection. 
And so when tapas is applied to the field of the body and the indriyas, we end up into a state of siddhi, which is a state of realization. And when we experience the state of realization, this siddhi also contains within it the, the notion that these states are perfected. And this is a strange word uh, in translation because when we hear perfected, then it immediately triggers, uh, which sutra is this? It's is it book two, somewhere in the book two after the Ashtanga Yoga Sutra. I don't remember the number. At the end of the book two. So if we think about uh, what perfection means, when, when something is perfected, the Western achievement-based mindset, we immediately think I'm number one. You know, we think, oh, perfect. I've graduated top of my class. I'm perfect. Not like that. It's not like you get a 100% score on tapas. It's not like that. What it means to be perfected, right, in terms of siddhi, it means to have worked through your stuff that you have put in the work. You have burned for a little while. You've worked through your stuff, what your stuff is. Not what my stuff is, no competition, not like we get a 100% score. The experience has been there. We have worked through that experience to its fullness, to its completion within ourselves. A better understanding of perfection is like the ripening of a fruit. So there are different people like fruits at different stages. So your version of perfection is going to be the perfect stage of ripening of the fruits of your own tapas. So some people like to eat bananas when they're green. I don't like to eat green bananas. My husband, he eats green bananas. Oh, so wonderful. I eat the green banana and I feel like it tastes like a potato and I don't really want a potato when I'm eating a banana. I don't have anything against potatoes, but if I hold a banana, I like the banana when some brown spots are on it. I like sweet fruit. So for me, I guess I have to burn a lot. So my tapas needs to be ripe and full. Maybe Tim, if you know Tim, maybe he's more lighthearted. He can have the green tapas and just have a little green banana and then it's good for him. So if we think about that, what is perfection for us? For us, we have to answer that question. What is the fullness of my tapas? You have to answer that for yourself, right? Kaya, Indriya, Siddhir, right? The perfection, the fullness. Ashuddikseya uh, is the word for purification. Burns through impurities, meaning burns through all of those habit patterns of the ego with, the, with tapas. Tapas, the fire, purification, literally translated as heat, but when we understand tapas in this sutra, I want you to think about two levels of tapas. First, we have the initial fire. Everybody experiences in the practice, initial fire. Your body feels like it's on fire. You know, during the practice, after the practice, day after the practice, first couple of years of the practice, your body is just constantly on fire, you know, soreness, right? And then this is not bad. I don't mean like injury. I mean like your muscles are a little sore. And this is totally normal. Then... Mind is also getting a little bit burnt. You know, we realize, oh, this behavior I used to do. Suddenly, you, there's a voice that didn't used to be there in your head. Oh, I shouldn't do this anymore. Oh, I've spoken badly to this person. Let me go and make amends. You know, and then people in your life start telling you, oh, you're such a different person. You know, you're so kind. You're so patient. And then you don't experience yourself like that. You think, oh, you think I'm kind? You think I'm patient? It's not me. It's the yoga. You know, it's tapas, burning through the old states of who you were. Now, this is the burning experience. There is very much this folklore legend about the glowing body of yogis. And so this comes also from the second notion of tapas, is that once tapas has burned through everything it needs to burn through, the light does not dissipate, but the light remains. And the idea with this sutra is that another expression of the fullness of tapas within the field of the body 
is that the body seems to glow with an inner light, that there seems to be a shininess around the bodies of yogis and the aura, you could say, of the yoga practitioner, that there is kind of the presence of light. And I would imagine that each of you at the end of practice, when I asked you to keep the eyes closed and bring your attention to the space around the body, that I would imagine that for each of you, there was an experience of light, a little bit of a vibration, even if you couldn't see light necessarily, but that there was this presence of energy and that this energy is around you at the end of practice. And to that degree that we work our tapas, to that degree that we experience that inner light, to that degree we can say, oh, I'm working for my own enlightenment. Not that, you know, in our minds, we think there's going to be like one snap and boom, we're enlightened. We're like waiting for this mystical Harry Potter wand to come in and go, now I've blessed you with enlightenment. And then we boom, we're, we're, we're enlightened. And then, I don't know, we disappear like the Celestine Prophecy. If you read that book at the end, everybody vibrates and disappears. Sorry if I gave away the ending. It's, a, it's not really about like the chronology of the book anyway, if you do read it. So, you know, it's not like that. It's not like, boom, now you're there. To the degree to which your tapas has reached its fullness, that much more light is there. To the degree to which anger, animosity, hatred, craving, clinging, all the trapments of the ego, jealousy, self-hatred, self-loathing, all of those things, all of those, those, those habit patterns which tie us into suffering, to the degree to which we burn through those, and burn through those and put on our work to that degree, we, we feel the, what, what's left when the chains aren't there anymore, the presence of light. This is why we practice. So remember that. If I can give everybody one piece of advice for practice is finish practice. Do not immediately jump up and start texting people. Finish your practice and just stay in the vibration for a little bit and attune your senses to the subtlety of your experience. And this will help you anchor what you worked in the practice. It'll help it be a more permanent state. You know, it'll help it be with you and stay with you off the mat later in the day, okay? I saw there were some questions. So now I'm gonna click the chat and see if there are any, if you have any other questions, you can tap them in there. I'm gonna scroll back a little bit because I think I saw a practical question. Thanks, everyone. I'm reading also all of these wonderful questions. So here's an interesting one from Henry, who says, do, I, do you consider dependence on your yoga practice to be an addiction? This is a really good question, Henry, and I'm really glad that you asked that. So first of all, what we, what we think about and what the Yoga Sutras say is that in order to remove the tendencies to focus the mind outward, we have to implant new tendencies to focus the mind inward. So remember, the quality of the senses, which gets addicted, the quality of the senses, which gets attracted to impermanent happiness, that very quality we direct to the inner world. So in a, a little, for, so for some period of time, you replace addiction to, the, to all the negative stuff with addiction to the positive stuff. But we remember that this is not the end. So this is uh, something very interesting is that Nirodha is the state of yoga, but what are we doing with the state of yoga? We are not, Nirodha is not the end. Oh, now I'm in Nirodha. Oh, I've arrived. No. What do you do with the state of Nirodha? Oh, okay. So now with the power of my mind, I'm now able to redirect the senses to the inner world. Oh, wonderful. Now here's the next step. 
where you can get rid of the samskaras, the positive samskaras, right? The nirodha samskara, which is the, the state of mind, which is trained to focus inward. Only when the state of nirodha is reached its fullness, reached its siddhir states, right? This perfection, this fullness state. Then you can have an experience rooted directly within you that you can wake up to the truth of, I am not my mind. I am not my thoughts. I am not my body. We can have this experience of I amness, this experience of vast, limitless consciousness, what we could call the sky-like nature of mind, this recognition that, oh, I am really not my mind. And in that place, we move into a very, very deep state of samadhi. So we can move past our uh, rigidity around the practice and into kind of a more uh, a fluid state. But this is something that maybe you have to work for whole life. I don't know. You know, we have to work maybe many lifetimes. Not sure. We can get small glimmers of that here and there. But this is sort of what the practice is priming us for. First, we train the mind to be focused away from external world into internal world. Once mind is trained with the same power that gets addicted to external world to get addicted to the good state within, then we can use that as a bridge to what you could think about as a truly transcendental experience. When that happens, then all of the mystical states and uh, esoteric states and blissful states of oneness start to come up. And then it begins to be something entirely else, okay? Okay, so I did see that there was... Yes, that's what I thought. I saw a very practical question from... Um, about the pelvic floor. So what is the pelvic floor? Well, the pelvic floor is the area called Mulabandha, the space between the sitting bones. And the pelvic floor involves the muscles that control uh, all your excretory organs. So this means the anus, the muscles that control your bladder, the muscles that control your sexual organs, the perineum, and also every network of tissue inside of the pelvic floor. We want to keep that pulled in through the whole practice. When you inhale, you squeeze it in. And when you exhale, you also squeeze it in. In the Ashtanga method, the only place where you release your pelvic floor is at the end when you take final relaxation and you take rests. So it's a tough practice. Okay, let's see if there are other questions. Oh, Charlene, you say, how would I be able to lift up and jump back and jump through and keeping the palms flat? Darlene, this is super hard. I've been watching everyone practice. There are very few people that can keep their palms flat and jump back and jump through. Uh, this is really, really difficult. Now, jumping back and jumping through is something I still work on to this day. It took me, it took me five years to balance and like really get a good handstand. And it took me like seven years to actually jump back. And jumping back is the first thing that I lose in my practice. My shoulder feels a little weak, gone. If I got, you know, if I took a few days off practice, you know, the jump back is gone. You know, when it's my ladies time, take the few days off practice, come back, can't jump back for a week. So it's the first thing that goes for me. For me, it's super hard. For other people, super easy. What's the difference? Everybody thinks, oh, it's got to be the long arms. Oh, all the people with long arms, they can jump back. Everybody else, short arms, poor me, you know? Then we start to create some obsession about arm length when we do this. Oh, look, long arms. Wow. You know, we create a craving for long arms. It's not about that. You have to find a way to work. There are many, many techniques to work on that. At the least, when you're lifting up, maybe not lift up, jump back. At least the lift up, like Navasana, try to keep the hands flat. If cannot keep the hands flat in Navasana, I think it's okay to use a block because you want to get the feeling that your whole body is off the ground. 
that's the feeling of the jump back and the jump through, that no part of your body is touching the ground. It's a really cool feeling. Hard, but helpful. So we could spend like two hours doing jump back and jump through. So many people have asked me for that recently. I'm doing a workshop, jump back, jump through in like two weeks. Sorry for the commercial, but I can really take like two hours to talk about jump back, jump through. And I promise you, your arm's not too short. I thought my arm's too short. I'm not tall. I'm small. Tim, my husband, he has long arms. For the first five years we were together, we had this argument going. I would say to him, oh, Tim, you have the ideal body for the yoga practice. He would look at me and go, no, you have the ideal body for the yoga practice. I said, no, I'm this small little thing with big thighs. How am I going to lift my big thigh off the ground? You're this long thing with so much space between your arm and the ground. You can immediately go up. So we had this argument for five years. After five years, we both realized we each suffer in our own way, and it's better for our relationship to leave it like that. <laughs> okay. So anyhow, there's a lot of questions about that, about the jump back, jump through. Keep practicing. It's really, really, really useful, really good work, at least really work on the lift up. Aina has a question about what do you do when you feel very sore all over and your mind is very irritated? So uh, this is wonderful because what is the tapas? When is tapas most strong? Tapas is not most strong when everything's going your way. You know, when you have a great practice, oh, the practice, oh, I felt so good today. Oh, I take it up, I jump back. Oh, both my legs go behind my head. Wow, amazing. Oh, I feel I can bend my back forever. Oh, so nice. You leave that practice, your tapas is not really strong. You know, we're not really there. It would be great if in that moment you could say to yourself, this too shall also pass. But we don't do that. We're like, yes, I've arrived at the realm of the yogis, you know, and we feel just super happy about that. So if you feel super sore, tired, irritable, particularly if the mind is irritable, if your mind is like, oh, I hate this. I hate this today. This is awful. Look at this. It's terrible. This is when your tapas is most effective. Just the fact that you're not quitting in that moment, your tapas is so strong because you're there and in that face of all of that negativity, you're saying, you know what? I stay the course. I stay the course. I breathe in, I breathe out, I stay the course. That in and of itself is enough to at least substantially lessen the inertia towards those negative thoughts. Your practice, in my opinion, is the strongest when it's the worst. And that sounds really weird, but if the practice is that you feel like you're flopping around and you're a disaster and you feel like, oh, this was a complete mess. The fact that you did it that day and that you're going to get back on the mat and do it another day, this means your tapas is at its highest. Tapas is the acceptance of those pains which lead to purification, that which brings up fire and heat within us. So on those days, remember, oh, tapas is strong. Oh, my mind, really, really busy. I feel hatred, animosity bitterness, jealousy. Oh, tapas must be on fire today. Wonderful. Let me burn. Right? If your body is really, really sore, the other thing, of course, is you don't need to do the most intense practice every day. You can't do chaturanga. My shoulders are sore. No problem. Lie on the floor in the shape of chaturanga. Not a problem. You feel, oh, I can't bend my back. An upward dog is impossible. Just take cobra. Do a modification. Oh, my knee is sore because I went for a jog yesterday. You know, even though Shrat said, don't ever, don't do running and yoga. So you, you thought, you know, okay, that, you know, let me try. You went for a jog and now your knees are sore the next day. And then you don't need to do Lotus that day. It's okay. Body is sore. Give the body a chance to recuperate. It's totally fine. The fact that you're on the mat, that in and of itself, that's tapas. Okay. So if practice, so this is, this ties into the question Lana asked, you know, is practice, practice recommended every day? Can you overdo it? If you try to integrate practice and sports, 
does like how can you how can you maintain a consistent practice? Here's my advice for that. You know, I know last week uh, somebody asked the question, "Can I do running in primary series?" And Shrat was just like, "No, you know, no, don't run." So I'm a little softer around the edges on that. But here's my advice to you: one thing physically in your life you do intensely. You find out what that is for you. One thing you love yoga. I love yoga. I want to do yoga two hours a day. I also like to run. Okay, run run for fun. What's not advised is you don't want to do, I do Ashtanga yoga, primary series, second series, third series. You do it like light your tapas. And then in the afternoon, you're like, I want to train for a marathon. Let me just run a half marathon in the afternoon. This is too much. Not good for the body. You pick one thing you do intensively. Let's say you love running. I love running. I want to train for a marathon. I have a student that's a triathlete. So when she's training for the triathlon, she doesn't do Ashtanga. She's like, it's too much for me. I just need like something restorative, something yin-based, something meditative-based. She made the decision. My triathlon is my number one intense training. So yoga then supports that. Same thing in the other way. Yoga is your number one thing that you do intensively, physically. It's your spiritual practice, including meditation. Long meditation. Like if you sit for two hours a day, Sometimes that plus running is also not great. There's this old expression called meditation knees. You spend all day sitting. It's really, really good to walk, but intensive running is also not great for long sits. So again, you pick your one discipline. I love this. This is your one intensive thing. Two hours of sitting every day. This is intensive, (laughs) you know? So when you think about that, pick your one intensive thing. And if that is not yoga, let your yoga support that in whatever format it is. So that means, oh, if you love primary series, maybe you, maybe you do gentle, half primary, don't jump back between the sides three times a week. Love primary series, love Ashtanga, but like running six days a week, take practice once or twice a week, take a run for fun. Yeah? Okay. Now, so let's see. Okay. There are a lot of interesting questions. Okay, so let's choose this. Um, there are a couple, couple women who asked about ladies' holidays. So sorry for the guys who are listening. This is a women question. So many, there's actually a few questions about this. Traditionally, during the practice, it is advised in Ashtanga yoga not to practice during the intense days of your ladies' cycle. Um, number one, uh, this is important. Like Things are going on down there. And if you do the intensive purification of the Ashtanga method, then it's like you're giving mixed messages to the body. Number two, the ovaries and the psoas muscle actually touch. They're touching. So when the ovaries are going through what they're going through and the, you know, the, 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 the womb is going through what it's going through during the cycle, the psoas muscle is impacted by the hormones that are released. This can have one of two effects. Women, everybody knows that if you experience your body is not your own. It's entirely dependent on the hormonal cycle. If you could choose the hormonal cycle, like it would be great if you, if, you, if you had a say. We don't have a say, you know? It's not like, you know, what we do, I guess, if you use a birth control pill, then you make some kind of external, you know, force, but we don't have a say. We, you know, the hormones going here, the hormones going there. You experience in the month in relation to the cycle changes in flexibility. One week you feel flexible, next week non-flexible. You can spend whole lifetime trying to identify what you ate that tried to make you more flexible, more stiff, more, more likely than not, it's the hormonal cycle. Sometimes stiff, sometimes flexible. Sometimes strong, sometimes weak. Hormones are making a huge difference on this. In the cycle, the hormones are having a dramatic impact on the uterus and the uh, ovaries are having a dramatic impact on the psoas muscle. This can lead to one of two things. Either you're gonna be really stiff or you're gonna be really flexible. Some women are like, I love when I'm really flexible. Please. Don't do Ashtanga when you're like that. If you feel you enjoy it, 
take a posture and just do it for your health benefit in that moment. But what we usually say is a couple of things uh, when this is happening. Number one, if the if you do intensive ashtanga, the fire can get directed towards the ovaries and the uterus, and then this can disturb the cycle. Sometimes women who don't take the days off end up losing their cycle. Uh, and this is for many reasons, not good, not healthy for the female body. Second thing is that because you don't have the support of uh, the good connection into the support of the, the pelvic floor and the lower abdominal muscles because the psoas muscles are compromised, postures that you do could put undue pressure on the low back. So you can, not your first practice like that, not your first hundred practices like that, but over 10 years of practice, if you don't take the ladies' holiday off, you can potentially like dry up the lubrication in the muscles and joints around the lower back and the spine and predispose yourself to back pain. So, and then the last thing is, after you practice for more than five years, do you really need anybody to tell you to take days off? You know, this is like volunteer, like mandatory days off. After 10 years of practice, I was like, sign me up. You know, this is great. Are you telling me that I'm following the method by sleeping in? Fantastic. Then after 10 years of practice, what I noticed is men start to look at ladies holiday and they're like, that looks fun. Could I have men's holiday also? You know, could I have three days a month that I don't have to practice and I'm getting a thumbs up from my teacher? Oh, you stayed home? Awesome for you. You know, there was a time in Mysore when Tim and I were practicing, there were no moon days. All the moon days fell on our rest days, like on the weekend rest day. Stay, I think it was like eight weeks, no rest days, except I had the ladies holiday. So I was like, yeah, normally three days, it can be between one and three days off. Depends on your cycle. You have a long cycle, three days off. You have a short cycle, one, two days off, fine figure out for your own body. There was this one time when there were no rest days. And then suddenly I was in, took ladies holiday and Tim, he, he came in and he stayed in bed and he took ladies holiday. I'm telling them all you took ladies holiday. He's lying. I would <laughs> never do that. <laughs> He's eating mangoes is what he was doing. Yeah, I want that. <laughs> yeah, give it, take that. He brought me a mango. These are our mangoes. Okay. So anyhow, the rest day, this is super important when we think about the rest day. So embrace the rests. Also embrace the moon days. People are like, why shouldn't I practice on the moon day? I was only new practitioners I know that feel this. You are not an invalid during your cycle. Same on the moon day. Do something else. Go for a walk. Do a yin practice. Do a restorative practice. Try something outside of the Ashtanga box. Long meditation. Long journaling. Attune yourself to the spiritual path. Think about the eight limbs. Make it as a time to review your ahimsa. Oh, nonviolence. Have I been violent over the last period of time? Probably if you start your cycle, ladies, you can answer the question, have I been violent? Indeed, I have. <laughs> you know? So we can think about that. Okay? All right. Suddenly, there are lots of questions that came in the chat. Let's see. So somebody has asked, Jordana, you're asking the question about there are some super hard poses like backbending that requires the shoulders to be really open. Many people have stiff parts of the body. So whether your hips are stiff, whether your shoulders are stiff, whether your forward bend is stiff, whether your back bend is stiff, whether this is stiff, twisting is stiff, this is stiff, this, that is stiff, everybody got some stiff part of the body. Even the most flexible person, you meet somebody, they look like, oh, they have rubber body. Even that person, they got a stiff place in the body. So like some people say to me, Kino, there's no place that's stiff in your body. No, no, not true. I have lots of stiff places in my body. For example, my ankles are extremely stiff. I have extremely stiff ankles. My toes, my ankles, extremely stiff. I had bad ankle injuries when I came into practice. And like before I started yoga, I used to trip and flip my ankle out all the time and sprain my ankle. So I came into the practice with 
really stiff ankles. So like John Shasana C was super difficult for me. Squatting was difficult for me. So what do you do when you got the stiff body part? Everyone's to know what's the solution. An entire yoga industry is built on this state. You know, you look online, oh, five steps to open your hips, five steps to open your shoulders, 10 poses to make your back bend beautiful, 10 asanas to make a good forward bend. Whole yoga industry based on this. But I got to tell you, there's no quick fix. There's no quick fix. Number one, all you can do, learn good technique. If you got a stiff area of the body, learn good technique. And you want to understand that stiff area, that's not your obstacle. That's your greatest opportunity. Oh, this stiff area, my shoulder's really stiff. Wonderful. I'm going to have such good tapas here. I'm going to have tapas of mind and tapas of body here. I'm going to learn how good alignment, good anatomical direction. I'm going to learn how this can really help my body. Number two, I'm going to be really conscious of what thoughts this stiff area brings up in my body. So this is wonderful. It's not a bad area. I'm going to really focus in. I'm going to really be conscious of this area of the body. Second, number two, the goal of your yoga asana is not yoga asana. Yoga asana is a tool to bring increased body awareness. So if you're stiff area, you feel a lot. That area is coming to life. What is even harder is if you have the stiff area and you feel nothing. So if you have a stiff area and you don't know what's going on, so you try to do backbending and you don't feel your shoulders, but you just know that it's like a big block. It's a big, like just a big block in your body. This is more difficult because now you need to first bring body sensation in. If at least you're stiff and you feel it, then yoga is already working. So we're thinking about, oh, I'm here to bring sensation into the field of the body. Wonderful. That's all we're doing yoga asana for. Your backbending does not need to look like somebody else's backbending. We're not, the, the purpose of yoga asana is not yoga asana. The purpose of yoga asana is a deeper, more subtle sensibility. So remember that. Your stiff area, we just first make sure you learn good technique. Good technique, just make sure that your body's going to be safe. Number two, recognize that the journey of yoga asana is about increasing body awareness, sensations in the body. If you're feeling more, great, it's working. Let's see. Okay. Hmm. Oh, this is an interesting question. Sylvia, you're asking the question about starting <clears throat> intermediate series. So second series, Ashtanga Yoga, for those of you who might not be familiar with it, Ashtanga Yoga, we have six series. And our internal joke is first series, many people practice, Shanti coming, right? Peace, Shanti. <clears throat> many people take practice, first series, Shanti coming. Second series, many people practice, also some Shanti coming. Third series, fourth series, some people practice, whole lifetime, no Shanti coming. Kind of the joke of the Ashtanga method. We got all these series, but it's not a linear progression. It's not like, now I get this third series, I get more happiness. You can experience all of the benefits of the inner process of spiritual awakening just through primary series, number one. Number two, second series is meant to stir up difficult emotions. So second series, is the Sanskrit name is Nadi Shodhana. I know Sharad is calling the alternate natural breathing Nadi Shodhana, but another name for the alternate natural breathing is Anulom Vulom, just the alternate natural breathing. Nadi Shodhana is nervous system cleansing, right? So second series is meant to stimulate emotions. And it's very normal. We move into deep backbending, intensive spinal extensions. We do really challenging hip opening, both leg behind the head postures. And then we do these crazy arm balances. It's totally normal for the emotions of second series to get really intense. So what do you do? You recognize, oh, tapas, the fire is increasing. Hmm. 
So now I'm going to work on that. So you sit with it as much as possible. Try not to back away. Once you start a new series in Ashtanga, it's important to try not to run away from it. So if you need to adjust some of the postures in primary series to give yourself more energy for second series, once you start that practice, try to stay with it. If you haven't started a meditation practice and the emotions are really, really intense, meditate for five minutes. Just start off with five minutes a day meditation. This can help really, really ground the mind, really ground the body, and help you find a little bit more peace. So again, if practice is difficult, remember that this is tapas. It's just tapas. Practice, it's important to understand that practice doesn't need to feel good in order to be effective. We, the, the practices that we're suffering the most, remember what I said at the beginning uh, or at the end of the little talk that I gave, that at the end of the practice, you want to tune into the subtle vibrations. Here's what's really cool about the inner work of the practice. You can fail so grandly during the asana practice. You can be there, oh, today I didn't jump back. Oh, today I fell out a headstand. I never fell out a headstand. Oh, today I couldn't even bind my hands in Marichasana C. I normally do that. You can have a disaster asana practice. It's a complete disaster. Every, nothing works. Oh, I can't even do chaturanga today. Oh, look at me. I can't even do downward dog. This happens often when you're injured. You know, you're injured and you sit there and you, nothing, you can't do anything. Or you're sick, you, have, you know, if you're, if you're sick or have some, you know, some, some sickness or some low energy in the body, then you come and the practice just feels like, ah, I couldn't do anything today. Normally, you would get up and start judging that. We get up, oh, it's terrible practice. No, stay there at the end. Close the eyes, feel the energy body. Even those practices leave you with a change in your inner atmosphere. And the more you can recognize that, the more you can steep in that, the more every practice is really, really beneficial. And we can realize, oh, even if I fail at asana, yoga is working. This is important. Yoga is not asana, but yoga asana is a part of the ashtanga path. That's super important to understand. Okay. All right. Let's see if maybe we got one more question. Oh, thanks everyone. Okay. So we have two questions, both from Carmen and Valentina and Monica. And Jessica, okay, a lot of, lot of people want to know, after the COVID-19 situation is over, are we going to keep doing online classes? Uh, everybody knows, for me personally, we're going to definitely, I will always have online classes for sure. We are currently working on uh, like a schedule where there's uh, uh, classes in person and classes online. And then beyond that, I think many of you know, uh, at our, we're in the middle of building out a new location here in Miami in the Wynwood region where Tim and I, we bought a warehouse and we're turning this into a kind of like headquarters for Ohm Stars, which is my online channel for Miami Life Center. And also for students, they have Wynwood Yoga. They're going to come in and we're going to make this like a, I don't know, like a, like a yoga headquarters. And then uh, the other the reason why I'm sharing that with you is we're also setting it up to have a really, really good, strong internet connection with the intention of maintaining uh, online, like live online classes and even doing um, live uh, uh, more things that would be live. And, and we're, we don't know exactly what form that's going to take, but it's definitely our intention to keep that going. And as long as you keep showing up and as long as you keep wanting to practice, then we'll keep doing it. Who knows how long this uh, pandemic is going on? We all hope it ends tomorrow. But uh, if we look historically, it, we're likely in this for the long haul, at least for the next uh, period of time. Again, we continually pray for the best, you know, but plan for the worst. So 
we really, really hope that it's over, you know, tomorrow that some, some genius scientist is like, oh, here's the vaccine and it just works and we're all good. Sorry if you're anti-vax. I know some people are really strongly, uh, you know, about that or, or we have some miracle and, you know, what happens to SARS, it, it mutated and it went away. So we can also just pray that it mutates into oblivion. That's probably the best solution. Then we don't need to get injections, you know? So we just, uh, we pray that this that mutates into something harmless that harms no beings. That would be nice. So anyhow, as long as you keep coming up, as long as you keep uh, showing up, and as long as you keep coming to class, we'll, we'll be here on the Zoom or whatever interesting format we develop into the future. Cool. Okay, we're going to end with the... Uh, one of the Shanti Mantras. So if you close the eyes. Poor Namadak, poor Namidam, poor Nat, poor Namudachate. Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnameva Vashishyate Om Shanti 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 Thanks very much everyone. Namaste. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.